Amen. You may be seated. Merry Christmas. This is a joy and a privilege on this particular evening to be able to look out at all of you and to see you looking back at me. This time last year, we did a a drive-in Christmas Eve in which we had vehicles parked in the parking lot and we projected onto the wall of the medical building next door and we broadcast over the radio. And that was novel. But you know what? The Lord made us to be together and this is so much better. And so I just want to wish you a Merry Christmas this evening. Thanks, Rob. (laughs) I also want to greet all of those of you who are tuning in online. We have a number of individuals who are sick or who are trapped in snowdrifts and otherwise couldn't be here this evening. And so we, uh, we love those. We had people traveling as well across the country to visit with family. And uh, many, many requests that said, we understand why you no longer live stream. And of course, we support that. But we really want to be a part of this service on Christmas Eve. And so we are live streaming this evening. We want to welcome all of those of you from all across Canada. From all four, We have people from all four time zones tuning in. Uh, For some of you, it's quite late, and we understand that, and so we just want to say Merry Christmas. But why Christmas? Why do we celebrate this evening? Why is it so special for us to be here on this particular night? Perhaps a better question to ask is why do you celebrate Christmas? The reason why you celebrate Christmas may, in fact, be very different from the reason that I celebrate Christmas, or even the reason the person next to you celebrates Christmas. Christmas. It's a funny and peculiar holiday this, this time of year. It's the only Christian holy day that is also a major secular holiday. And it, undeniably, it's one of our culture's biggest. I think it's actually the biggest holiday. I know it's the biggest holiday in North America and for much of the rest of the world, in fact. But the result is that we have two very different Christmases that we're celebrating. Two very different types of celebrations. Each is observed by millions of people at the very same time, but again, celebrated for very different reasons. And this brings some discomfort on both sides. Many Christians can't help but notice that more and more of the public festivities surrounding Christmas studiously avoid any reference to its Christian origins The background music in the shopping stores is moving fast away from joy to the world to something more like have a holly jolly Christmas. On the other hand, non-religious people, those individuals who don't celebrate Jesus and don't celebrate Christmas because of its, its relationship to the birth of Christ, can't help but find that that older meaning of Christmas just keeps intruding uninvited through the music of traditional Christmas carols and all these Christians running around refusing to get with the program and say happy holidays and insisting instead on saying Merry Christmas. The question then for each of us this evening is, why do we celebrate Christmas? Why do you celebrate Christmas? Why Christmas? This evening I want to answer this question For all of us, I can't explain exactly why unbelievers find so much joy in this holiday. Because if the birth of Christ is not true, then all of this is mere sentimentality and kitsch. But for Christians who worship Jesus, this holiday is the most important holiday, not 
necessarily because of what happened in the manger, but because of what the one born in the manger was born to do. Our text this evening is from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. The author of Hebrews writes, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able also to help those who are being tempted. This passage tells us that God came to free us from the slavery that we experience from the fear of death. Death is terrifying. It's terrifying. Now, this doesn't mean that, the most, that most unbelieving people are running around consciously living in fear, casting over their shoulder that, that uh, telltale backward glance, letting you know that they're in abject terror. That's not necessarily the case. That isn't exactly what this fear of death is referring to either. But then the question is, what exactly is this fear of death that brings about slavery, this, this bondage? Well, what this text is telling us is that people are enslaved by the fear of death in such a way that they consciously try to find ways not to feel that intolerable fear that we all must feel whenever we stop to ponder eternity and the day of judgment. The fear of dying is so natural for all of us and as well for sinful people who are not ready to meet God, and especially for those who are not ready to meet God. This fear of dying is so great that it rules them like a silent master. That's what the scriptures are telling us. And this silent master can take on many, many forms. The main form, I would say, is the the world of denial, living in denial. A couple of years ago on Christmas Eve, this is probably six or seven years ago, I was called to the ICU. A family member had requested that I visit an individual who was on their deathbed, and I went on Christmas Eve This very night, about five years ago, and I sat with this lady, and the doctors had said, she won't make it to the morning. And I sat with this particular lady who was in her late 80s, and I said, would you like to pray to receive Jesus Christ? And she said, that's not necessary right now. And I said, why do you think that? You don't have much time left. And she said, oh, don't tell me that. I'll get through this. And she was there on her deathbed in the ICU on Christmas Eve. The doctors came and tried to talk to her several times while it was there, and yet she would hear none of it. It wasn't because she was incapable of understanding what it was that they were trying to tell her. It was because she was living in denial, and the reason she was living in denial was because she was terrified of death. In this way, the fear of death had become a master over her life that entrapped her, that enslaved her, that imprisoned her so that she was not capable of hearing what was plain as day and what the doctors were trying to tell her. All people are driven 
either consciously or unconsciously, to shut their eyes and close their ears and blank out their minds to every thought that they are going to die and that they are going to give an account to God one day. This is a form of slavery, this blanking out of our minds that is brought on by the fear of death. So Christ frees us from the fear of this death, from the enslavement that that fear brings. Look, at with me, look with me at verses 14 and 15, and I just want to walk through you what this passage is teaching in terms of how we're set free. It's a series of steps, five steps. Verse 14, the first part of verse 14, it says, Since the children share in flesh and blood. The first thing we need to recognize is that we're all human, we're all mankind, we're all humanity. And this phrase, the children, is a reference back to a previous verse in, in the book of Hebrews, where it refers to the people that God calls to be his people and whom he gives to his, and to whom he gives his son Jesus. So he says in verse 14 that these children share in flesh and blood. So the text is simply saying that the children of God are human. You and I are human, but it's also saying that Jesus, that God himself became human. That's what the next part of the verse says. It says, "Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. The Son of God didn't come into being when Jesus was born. This isn't when the second person of the Trinity just suddenly sprang into existence. The Son of God existed before creation, indeed from before all eternity. But since the children whom he loved and wanted to save were human, he took on the same nature, the same human nature that we had. And that's the meaning of Christmas. The meaning of Christmas is that God came to a cradle, but the cradle is a prelude to something greater. What greater mystery do we behold at Christmas time? Well, we continue to read in verse 14. It says, Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death. Christ did this. He took on flesh and blood. He became a man just like you and me in order that he could do something which deity could not do apart from taking on the human nature. He did this in order to die. As God in his own divine nature, Christ's life was indestructible. It was impossible for him to die. He simply could not die. But death was, and indeed is, necessary in order to deal with the guilt and the penalty of sin. So Christ became a human precisely so that he could be capable of actually dying. This is what love does. This is what Christmas is then all about. It is about God taking on a nature in order to suffer a fate which he otherwise could not suffer so that he could save us. That's the meaning of Christmas. It embraces suffering and death out of love for the life and the well-being of others. The next step in this process, again, the very last part of verse 14, in dying, Christ rendered powerless the one who has the power of death, which is the devil. Our text reads, quote, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. In dying, Christ defeated, in some very profound way, the power of the devil, and he took away his ability to destroy us through death. 
How did Christ do that? That's what we're going to see in just a moment when we get to verse 17. But for right now, it just says that this is what Christ was willing to do. This is why he came and willingly died. The apparent defeat of death was a knockout blow to Satan. How? Well, hold on just one more second, and we'll see. Just to review, step one, you're human. Step two, therefore, Christ becomes a human. Step three, he did this so that he might actually be capable of dying for you. Step four, he dies for you in order to nullify the deadly power of the devil. And step five, he does this so that you might be freed from slavery through the fear of death. All of this happens so that you and I now can step back and we can evaluate our life and we can look at that moment, that day of judgment in which we're all going to stand before God and we can start to think about how we want to live our life. No longer in fear, no longer denying that day, no longer trying to blank out our minds and not think about what eternity might hold for us, but just the opposite. Now, through the death of Christ, we don't feel any fear when we face death, when we think about death. This is reinforced by verse 16. It says in verse 16, Surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. It's probably one of the most profound mysteries in all the universe. These magnificent, incredible beings, these angels, full of power, full of grace, towering over humanity. You think these majestic creatures, surely these majestic creatures are greater than you and I. Surely God is more concerned with these creatures that he has created than he is with us. But our text tells us just the opposite. In fact, when the angels come on the night that Jesus is to be born, they inform the shepherds that this is the day that the Savior was born. They say to him, for to you is born this day. In Bethlehem, a Savior, the Son of David. They don't say, for to us is born this day. When the angels share the message of salvation with those shepherds on that fateful night, they make it clear in their declaring of that message that Christ has come for them, not for the angels. And so the author is emphasizing this. Jesus did this. He took on human form for us. God loved us He comes to die for us. How does his death help us? There's where we come to this really big, fancy word in verse 17. Propitiation. I want you to compare the flow of thought in verses 14 and 15 with that of verse 17. Verse 17 says that since Christ is aiming to deliver humans, or the children of Abraham, and not angels, it reads, quote, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That fancy word, propitiation. Now, what stands out immediately when you compare this verse, verse 17, with the flow of thought that we see in verses 14 and 15 is that both of them speak of Christ having to become exactly like us. Verse 17 says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Verse 14 says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same. So we know that in verse 17, we're dealing with the exact same thought that we first encountered in verses 14 and 15. And that thought is this, Jesus Christ had to become like one of us in order to accomplish this this act of propitiation. You're sitting here, you're thinking, I just don't even know what that means, propitiation. 
Earlier this afternoon, I was speaking with uh, one of the teachers in our school, and she, she shared with me that she, could, she knew a word that had like four dozen syllables in it. It's like a crazy long word. I don't even know what it is. It took forever to pronounce it to me. And then she went ahead and spelled it to prove that she really knew what that word was. And sure enough, I looked it up in the, in the dictionary, and it has something to do with some kind of pneumonia that you get when you get sick with something in your lungs. I'm not sure. You're all sitting there thinking, yeah, exactly. What, what is that supposed to mean? That's kind of the thought we have when we come to this word propitiation sometimes. What, what, is it, what does this word mean? In the early, 19th, in the early 20th century, beg your pardon, in the early 20th century, C.H. Dodd proposed an alternative translation of this Greek word, helasmos. His suggestion was that we should translate the Greek word helasmos as expiate. Up until this moment, it had been propitiate. So to help you understand the meaning of the word propitiate, I'm going to contrast it with its proposed alternative, expiate. The idea here is that God is righteously indignant against us for our sins. That as the judge of the universe, he has to accomplish justice. To expiate is to expend your anger, to get it off your chest, as it were, to to pour out all the rage and all the wrath that you feel as a result of the crimes and the injustices that have been done. That's what the word expiate means. And indeed, there are some scholars who think that this word is best understood by using that English word. What Jesus did on the cross was he absorbed and he embraced all of the wrath and the anger of God for our sin. But the old translation, I think, is really the most accurate, propitiate. In this word propitiate, it isn't simply that an angry deity has been placated, that his anger has been poured out. It means something more. It means that we have not merely dealt with his anger, but that we have secured once again his favor for us. In Jesus Christ, in what Christ was doing for us on the cross, Jesus did not merely take away God's anger. Jesus did not merely take away God's need for justice by satisfying the demands of the law. It wasn't that Jesus merely canceled the debt against us. He did do that, but so much more. In being the sinless son of God, Jesus died on the cross not merely to wipe the slate clean. He died on the cross so that all those who would believe in him would not merely have a clean record, but would now be looked upon by God Almighty, the Father in heaven, with favor. How many of you fathers here tonight are excited to give your son or your daughter, a gift tomorrow morning under the Christmas tree. It isn't merely that your kid was halfway decent this year and so you're going to just not let him have a punishment tomorrow. No, I mean, surely, I pray, don't raise your hand if that's you here tonight. Okay, you're all laughing because you know that's ludicrous. You desire, if there's any shred of decency in you as a father, You desire to see your child happy on Christmas morning because you take joy, you take pleasure in your child's happiness. What Jesus has come to do is to bear our penalty on the cross 
so that God is not merely satisfied in terms of his anger for our sins. No, much more than that. Because of Jesus dying on the cross, God is well pleased, well pleased to look on all those who hope in Christ with favor. And now he is able, because of Christ, to bless us as his children. That's the meaning of Christmas. You see, that first Christmas long ago was really just the start of many Christmases. That Christmas long ago in which Jesus was born was a prelude. He comes to the cradle as a prelude to going to the cross. And in going to the cross, he opens up the floodgate of the Father's love and mercy for his children to pour out not merely grace and forgiveness, but to now come with all the blessings and all the riches of his divine inheritance, which he wants to give to you and me, those of us who believe in him. We are pleased. He is pleased to call us not merely forgiven. More than that, he looks upon us and he says, we are his children. He looks upon us and he says, you are my son and my daughter. That's the meaning of Christmas. So in a sense, it really is about receiving presents. It isn't merely about just getting what we want and trying to find our happiness in these earthly toys and trinkets. But the meaning of Christmas really is about receiving a gift. And that gift is Jesus Christ. In the same way that your loved ones or your family member or your friend is going to give you a gift this Christmas holiday season, God has given you a gift. The strangest and most peculiar thing happens to me from time to time. I am given Christmas cards, and I'm usually given a couple of dozen of them at a time, usually right around this time of year. And I tuck them away in my Bible, and I forget about them. I'm embarrassed to admit that, but it it has happened, I think, every single year since I've been in pastoral ministry. And right around February or so, I'm going back through my papers and trying to sort things out and get caught up after a busy couple of months. And I'll find a couple of Christmas cards that I've misplaced, that I've overlooked for the last two or three months. And of course, I'll open them up, and there'll be like a $25 gift card to Starbucks, or one year it was a $100 gift block gift card to the chopping block. Steaks, like, that's great. Like, wow, $100 meal for my family. You see, when you're given a gift, you have to receive it. And this is really the distinction between those who go to heaven and those who remain under God's judgment. Jesus has given us all a gift in coming to this earth and dying for us on the cross. But just because the gift is here and it's available and it's been given does not mean that you have received it. You say, well, what must I do to receive the gift of Christ? Verse 16 tells us, you go back to verse 16, the author of Hebrews reminds us once again, it is not for angels that he comes to help, 
Notice what he says. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. The offspring of Abraham. This is a reference, of course, to the father of faith in Genesis chapters 12 and following. This hero of Israel who believed in God. And as Genesis tells us, it was counted to him as righteousness. See, you can know about God all day long. You can know about Jesus all day long. But unless you have a faith like Abraham, unless you have a faith that is willing to surrender to God and say, not my will for my life, not my plan for my life, but your will be done, your plan be accomplished, Unless you have a faith that is willing to surrender and lay down your rights and say, God, I am yours. I choose to make myself yours, and I want nothing but to have you as my own. Unless you do that, you have not received Christ. My encouragement to you this Christmas season, beloved friends and family, members of First Baptist Church. Understand what Christmas is all about. It's not about the kitsch. It's not about the lights and all the cheesy Hallmark movies that we watch all through these last couple of weeks where the plot line is always the same. Some big wig executive that made it big in the city comes home to a small town where he's from, meets his high school sweetheart that he'd forgotten he was really in love with, and ends up saving some store or business or other small-town cause that's under dire threat. That's what the world thinks Christmas is about. The truth of Christmas is that God has come in order for you to believe upon him, to receive him, and to worship him. Receive Christ this Christmas. Don't let another day go by without Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just say thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. We understand, O oh Lord, that God coming to a cradle was but a prelude to God coming to the cross. And we just say thank you so much for dying on the cross for our sins. For that is the real meaning of Christmas, Lord that you loved your people enough that you were willing to become exactly like us, to walk the proverbial mile in our footsteps, to know life as we know it, to live life as we live it, to suffer all this that you might save those whom you love. This is indeed good news. Thank you, God, for dying for us. My prayer this evening, Lord, is that you would open the eyes of any who are here who know of you but have not received you that you would convict their heart, that you would open their eyes, that you would begin to press home this question, have they received you? Help them to see their need to have a relationship with you, Lord. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.